everything, the world I, I, as I'd known it, um, was plunged into a, a deep darkness that felt so thick that it was of another world. It was nothing that I'd ever encountered. So my first reactions or reaction was that I must, I must have just died. G'day, I'm Richard Harris and thanks for joining me on Real Risk, the adventure podcast. My guest today is someone who I admire greatly. Jill Hicks is a South Australian who moved to London to pursue a life, a career and an adventure in the big smoke. She thrived in the frenetic pace of that most cosmopolitan of cities. But then in July 2005, her life changed forever when she was caught up in the most awful way in the terrorist attack on the London transport system. Three subway trains and the number 30 double-decker bus became the targets of four separate suicide bombers. And in that rush hour attack, London was thrown into chaos and 52 people lost their lives. Jill considers herself one of the lucky ones, and it's a real privilege to speak to her today. Jill, thank you for joining me. What an absolute pleasure it is to be here. Look, I guess I should have known, but I was actually quite excited to find out you live fairly close to me. <laughs> and I, to be honest, I hadn't even quite made the connection that you'd come back to Adelaide. So um, you were born and, and bred in Adelaide, obviously. I was. Uh, a lot of people don't. I, I've, I've managed to be one of those... I, I'm hoping uh, perceived people of the world where you're not quite sure, um, but I just pop up. So you were born um, down Glenelg Way, and um, when did you first decide that you uh, that Adelaide wasn't quite big enough for you, and you wanted to head overseas for some adventure or career or to uh, or personal development? Well, it's interesting actually. So um, I, I've often sort of thought back to those moments of of how how very safe and how very wonderfully predictable living in a place like Adelaide um, was. And um, I was actually, you know, the catalyst for me leaving was based on trauma, um, that I'd lost my parents a year apart from each other. And um, I happened to be with mum when she died. So both my parents died in their 50s, so they were you know, quite... You know, they didn't have the lives that I, that I, they would have loved to have had, and and indeed that I would have loved to have had with them. So I never knew them um, as an adult person myself, and um, so I was I was with Mum when she died, and I remember, you know, distinctively every moment of her hand in my hand, and I remember her hand in mine, and and it just slipped out, and and looking at this beautiful woman who'd given so much to so many people and that that was it and I felt so seeking the answers you know to, to questions that that don't have answers for and I think that's the most difficult part of life when when you, you you're asking why and there's no one to answer the why so so I I looked at her body and and all that all that was flushing through me was this sense of there has to be more there has to be more and I need to go on a quest and I need to find out what I'm made of I need to put myself in situations that that 
perhaps are uncomfortable. I don't know. Yeah, there's this, there's this wonderful naivety, isn't there, of, of youth when when you don't know what you don't know, and how how protective that is of of all the scenarios of things that can go wrong. Because I found myself, you know, on a on a Qantas plane. Never having left Adelaide. So I'd never been to Melbourne. I'd never been to Sydney. I'd never been to larger capital cities. And here I was on a plane, not even knowing that it was a 24-hour flight. <laughs> so I look back on those times thinking, what was I thinking? But that wonderful bravado of, you know, I'm off on my, my quest and, and it's going to be amazing. I didn't have a sense of size or scale and or grandeur or history. And I got out at Heathrow and I remember asking someone behind one of those um, fantastic little uh, you know, windows uh, and I just said, you know, what's the easiest way for me to get to London? And this guy looked at me and he said, you're in London. I said, oh, but where's all the shops? <laughs> he said... And he said in a proper proper East London sort of accent, he said, you know, you take the tube, love. And I didn't know what a tube was. Well, so he hadn't done much research. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. I just thought, all I was worried about was what clothes should I pack, you know. And, um, and I had on blue velvet sort of suede boots, high heel boots, and this sort of travel outfit and perfectly blow-dried long hair and sunglasses on my head you know what was I thinking and and so in those flashes of moments of of you know I'm somewhere that's the future and London's going to going to reveal this incredible part of the world's existence that I'm yet to see I was racing with my mind of what is a tube what is wow I mean it you know it sounds like it could be this giant wind tunnel, doesn't it? <laughs> and that I might be literally, you know, sucked into the centre of this incredible wherever the shops are, London. You know. And um, so I was quite disappointed to find out that a tube was just a, a, an underground train. Well, and as it turns out, it would play a, a very big part of your life. It would uh, be it? such a significant part yeah. of my life. Actually, so, in, in Australian parlance back then, uh, a tube was a can of beer. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lucky I didn't go down that line of, of questioning of where. No, I don't want a beer. I just want to get. I just want to travel into London. Isn't it amazing how naive we are when we do a, a first trip anywhere outside of our, our hometown? And I, I remember my first trip to London as a as a um, you know late teenager, early twenties maybe, and um, getting off that plane and walking around London thinking. You know, I'm here, everyone. What yeah. you know, I'm, I felt really special. Like yes. I was the first Australian to ever arrive in yes. London. You just felt like the world would be your oyster, yes. and everyone would think you're amazing yes. because you're you're a stranger in a strange land, yeah. kind of thing. And it's not an arrogance. It, it's it's just this beautiful, wonderful naivety. And I think particularly also because you. you and I don't know whether this is an Adelaide thing or not, but we tend to talk to people. So if, if I was at a bus stop, I'd say hello or good morning. And that was even as a young person. Yep. So so there's this this sort of already a posture of wide-eyed you know, joy being in a place that, that perhaps finds that a little 
a little interesting in itself because I remember I'd, I'd be in this tube, you know, trying to talk to people and say, hi, you know, my name's Jill, just come in from Adelaide. And, um, and I'd see if they could, they'd just be moving as far and quickly away as they possibly could. Yeah. So did you arrive in London with a plan, like a career plan? Or absolutely, oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I thought, you know, um, after meeting the Queen, of, thought, of <laughs> course, I thought that um, I, I, I'd always been interested in, in design and infrastructure and architecture, but it wasn't until, um, well, really, I was, I was overwhelmed by the homelessness when I arrived that I'd never seen so many people living on the streets. And that really influenced um, my early thinking of, of just how fragile our lives are. And, and, and I've started a relationship with the, the same 10 homeless people that I would see every day. And I was out looking for work. I, it, was, it was a recession in the UK at the time, so it was really dark days. And, and I had um, traveller's checks, so that's how long ago it was. And I remember... Yeah, the little wad of travellers' checks sort of being very, very thin, and I was quite worried as to what exactly will I do. And I was motivated by these ten homeless people that every day would say to me, "Come on, Jill, hope you get something great today." And there was there was this one one day that one of them, and his name was Kevin, he said to me, "Jill, look, we've all been chatting, and and we'd love you." To help if you can, and I said, "Look, you know, I, you know, I'm living in a shared house. There's no electricity. There's no hot water. I haven't got any money." And they said, "No, no, 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 no. We, we want you to help us save our money." And so, essentially, they wanted me to be their bank. So we came up with this plan together uh, that every day I would come and take a portion of their money and put it in an envelope in my bag with their first name. So all I had was their first names. All they knew was that I was Jill. And if you could think about what that must have looked like of this short, young Aussie girl walking along every morning saying, what, you only got 20 quid for me? <laughs> like a standover girl. I was running a racket. Um no, I wasn't running around. But but I think that that encounter and that relationship and that trust really sort of instilled something in me that I felt that I I just need to be brave and I need to I need to go and get that job. Okay, so you were in London for some time. You got established in your 26 career. 26 years, yeah. yeah. And mm. life um, was in a pretty good routine. Yes, I, I ended up having all the all the vices of being a proper Londoner. So I smoked 40 cigarettes a day, um, drank copious amounts of gin when I should be having a decent meal, um, lived most of my life at the pub after I'd finished work, became a workaholic. You know, all the things where you... You know, I look at that person now and I, even though I had the understanding of mum and dad's early demise, I thought that I was absolutely, um, you know, bulletproof, that I, I could live like that and not pay any consequences for it. So in a way, although life was great and you'd set yourself up in London, you were maybe on a bit of a, a slippery slope towards ill health and 
overwork and stress and all the all the unfortunate yeah. trappings of yeah. modern life. We, we think we're invincible, you know, when we're at, at the peak. And um, if I could go back and talk to that Jill now, I'd definitely say, please, please look after that incredible body because it's going to serve you like you would never believe. So that brings us to July 2005 and there was a, a circuit breaker mm-hmm. um, in, in, which perhaps in the long run has stood you in good stead, but um, well, it was a terrible day for you. Tell us about that morning and how that day started. Mm. It's it's funny because I was a creature of of routine and I was the the person that was always at my desk at anywhere between 7.30 and 8 a.m. every day. I had a little coffee club meet-up in Covent Garden. I'd have my first little cigarillo. Um, I, I was an absolute creature of routine. And, I, and it was just this one morning that I wasn't in that regular, um, you know, movement to go to work, that, that I was running late. So the day before... Um, July the 6th, we, London had won the um, Olympic Games. So we were absolutely, you know, jubilant with, with, with celebrating and thrilled because I worked at the Design Council. So it was an absolute moment for, for me and, and my team to be showcasing the best of British design, you know. And so this was one evening that, that perhaps I'd had a little bit too much to drink, home a little bit later than usual, and I'd slept in and I never do that, never do that. So I, I woke up... Um, absolutely in a panic and I did something else that was completely out of character and that is I put a scarf on it was a nylon type scarf and I never wear things like that and I just had it there and I thought oh put that on and I ran and I ran and I ran and got to my tube station and it's the it's these annoying increments of time you know and I know you know about this because every minute counts and that's what I have to reflect upon now of every minute being this extra increment that ended up ensuring almost that I boarded unknowingly the same tube carriage at exactly the same time as what we now know is a was a 19-year-old suicide bomber. Was it a normal day otherwise to you? Uh, you know, did it, it was. Feel it was British summer, so that meant it had been it had been raining. So everyone had their raincoats on. Um, you know, it, it, and and I had that 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 Londoner um, ingrained in me by that time. That you know, you don't talk to anyone. You you're shoved up so tight to the person next to you that you can feel their breath on your cheek. And yet I'd never be able to tell you what that person's face looked like. Um, and we were crammed into this carriage that was leaving King's Cross Station. And I, my last thoughts were, you know, can the driver just close the doors? You know, I'm already late. I, I just, we've got to go. And then those doors closed and it was just seconds. In fact... You know, I've even had to rethink the meaning of time because it, I don't even think I could measure time as we as we currently do. It, it, I would measure time in that moment 
and the subsequent moments following as just a series of breaths. And that's all I remember, that it was a breath and everything, myself, everything, the world I, I as I'd known it, um, was plunged into a, a deep darkness that felt so thick that it was of another world. It was nothing that I'd ever encountered. So my first reactions or reaction was that I must I must have just died. Because we don't know what death is, do we? It's this it's this incredible mystery because anyone who's who's died can't come back to tell us this is what it was. So we've got some scientific evidence of this is what's happening to the brain, but we we don't have anyone to say this is what it was. And so I thought, whatever's happened, I must have had a heart attack. I'm dead. This is this is it. I'm dead. And and bearing in mind this is all split seconds of breath. So I have no idea how the brain is processing or my thoughts are processing. It felt that I was flying through the air and yet that I was stuck in hot tar. It, all of these incredible contradictions. And it was only when I heard the faint sounds of other people screaming that I actually felt comfort that whatever's happened, I'm not dead. I'm here, whatever's, whatever here is, but I'm not alone that whatever has happened has happened to us all. And that gave me a real sense that, well, if it's happened to us all, we'll be okay because we've got each other. So there was a, a sense of relief? Huge relief that, I, that, that, that if I wasn't dead, then it's not over and I've got a chance. And the, the, the chance is with being together, that we're here together. And with the relief, was there a sense of fear or pain or discomfort no so I didn't it's almost like I didn't have time there wasn't the space to feel the fear there wasn't any space to feel I felt nothing I felt no pain I felt nothing so in, in a sense it was like a complete detachment that whatever this this thick blackness was it was also something that was embracing me and holding me and keeping me from feeling anything. So it, it, it was this, again, it, the whole thing is this contradictory experience of, of horror but, but safety in the horror and the, the darkness held me and kept my body, you know, alive. Did you still know that you were on a train at, at some point? I didn't know what had happened. Um, I I thought that we must have had a crash of some sort, and you know what I think what got to me in those very early moments was the settling. So the kind of the settling of 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 what had just happened. So not yet an aftermath. So the time before an aftermath, I call the settling, and it was like the settling of okay, I'm here, we're here. I can't see anyone. I can hear some people, and and the, the the desperate need to 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 put my arm out and to feel to feel anyone around, and it's really got to me actually because particularly in London, 
that that unwritten etiquette of you you don't talk to anyone you particularly in the tube you know you you travel as commuters there's there's the a great um sort of i guess pride in anonymity that 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 is how you travel and you are you, you just don't look at anyone you don't talk to anyone and and here we were and this was my first you know it, upon reflection this is my first great understanding and I guess frustration at, at humanity because we were hardened travellers who reveled in being anonymous and now we were each other's lifelines. And when I managed to punch through that darkness and feel someone else, that person held me back. You know, we were there for each other. And as the darkness sort of lifted, you know, I still couldn't make things out but I could see shapes and I could absolutely feel that, you know, I'd, I'd landed on something. So this must be whatever the ground is. So I'm, I'm on the ground, I'm here, I'm still alive, and here is someone else holding my hand. We'll get through this. It's amazing that you go from intentional strangers keeping people at a metaphorical distance yeah. and then suddenly in the blink of an eye, there's nothing more important that, than that human contact. And it's like even just being in an elevator when some, and you know, you're all kind of standing there stiffly and not looking at each other, yeah. but suddenly the thing stops between floors and suddenly it's like everyone's yeah. nervously laughing and looking at each other and wanting that contact because they're immediately uh, alarmed. And I just think about the boys in the cave for a moment and yeah. um, complete strangers, but there we are, one group needing our help and one group being very worried about what we we're going to be able to do for them but that immediate connection and bond you feel between two people sharing an, an intense experience yeah. like that because in that moment nothing else matters other than you know and it's not even a selfish instinct the instinct is absolutely we 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 will get out of this together it, you know, there, there's a, I think, a, a, an instinct of, of looking after yourself, but but absolutely, it was about the we and keeping keeping everyone buoyed. And and I was so mindful that that people were slipping away. For me, what was you know really important was for for those people that were slipping away, for them to go in a in a sense that was better than what this scene was. So so we were talking to each other, trying to keep at each other buoyed, um, calling out our names, doing a you know, just a, this wonderful um, you know, again, instinct in of of doing a roll call and having everyone, even though you couldn't see them and they felt that they were so far in the distance, they may have just been next to you, but, you know, waiting for each person to say their name and that they're still here and that we kept that going because it was it was just close on an hour that we were there waiting. I mean, the carriage was packed. The bomber, mm. I understand, was just one person away from you. There's yeah. one, one person between you and the bomber who yeah. presumably his, his presence helped save your life. And sadly, he lost his, mm. yeah. Um, and I now know that that person, um, I wish I'd, I'd said hello. I wish I'd said good morning. Um, his name was Adrian. And I've, I 
feel very close to his mother, his wife, his family. We, we were all in touch. Um, and Adrian means a lot to me because Adrian's presence saved my life. And every time I go to do something, I always consult with Adrian to say, you know, give me a give me a little nod. Is this the right thing I should be doing? Um, he he's you know my daughter knows all about Adrian. Adrian's a big part of my life. Mm. Mm. I can understand that. Mm. Did many people die on the carriage itself? Yeah, twenty six um, died, and um, it was the largest. It was four um, bombs targeting the uh, transport system that morning, and we had the largest loss of life. Had the train left the station? Yes, just yeah. seconds seconds out. So it was in between uh, Russell Square Station and King's Cross. So the rescue effort was kind of initially a little confused because because they didn't know, you know, all you could see was smoke. So so where is that coming from? Is it the King's Cross end or, or the little known station of Russell Square? So, of course, that immediately makes the rescue and, and the analysis of what, what's even happened far more complicated if it's not right there Absolutely. at the station. Do you know, Richard, listening back to the, the transcript of, um, of the calls that morning and just hearing, you know, the, the, the London Underground um, people sort of talking to each other saying, I think we've had a power surge and I think this has gone wrong. But nowhere did, was it ever understood that, this was a bomb blast and then we see that happening you know in three other locations and it's like oh okay we're we're under attack yeah i have listened to some of that stuff recently actually in preparing for this chat and i'm always struck by the calm i know voices yeah. of the british people yeah. and <laughs> that must surely come from their you know uh, to a degree yeah. a lifetime of, of struggle yeah. and of course the second world war keep calm and carry on yeah has ingrained that, I think, into the British yeah. Uh, psyche. Yeah. And listening to those guys uh, talking about, okay, this is a significant problem. Look, we can't rule out it's a terrorist thing, but at the moment it looks like this power problem, blah, blah, blah. And they're so calm and mm. so organised. They're still just, mm. you know, mobilising resources, uh, doing all the right things from what I can see. And, mm. um, yeah, it's a huge credit to that that group of people mm. i i agree and um and and equally just the 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 the, the force of of we will get back up and we'll get back up as soon as possible the whole focus was we want the tube back straight away everyone hands on deck let's get back to life and you know i remember hearing about this later when i was in hospital and i was so you know, initially just so annoyed that, that you know my life had changed life had changed and and how could anyone get on with things how could how could there be normal again mm. but now i understand how important it is and and how important that that british spirit of of you know um yes yeah, yeah, stiff up a lip but that stoic sort of you know calm in, in no matter what, and we will get back on and get back up and off we go. So tell me about the first rescuer that came on to the <gasps> train because I gather oh. they became very important to yeah, you. Yeah, look, so it's um, her name is Tracy and, and Tracy's my dearest friend. Um, I'd, 
So much so I can't even really think of her as a friend. I think of her as as a family member, as my sister. Um, we talk to each other as family. So she's she's the one person in my life that can tell me as it is, and um, and I'll I'll listen to her. Um, she entered the carriage, and, there, and it's very interesting times. The the story is quite. Um, quite deep uh, in in that what London had to go by once, you know, everyone was concerned that this possibly could be an attack, is that three months prior, um, Madrid had been uh, attacked in their transport system and there was deliberate secondary devices laid. So there was deliberate devices laid to attack rescuers. And so there was a very clear command, which was in London, which was, you know, no one down until we absolutely know what we're dealing with. So the different ranks of police and British Transport Police were all there waiting. You know, and you know yourself, the instinct when you're a rescuer is to rescue. So they were all there almost chomping at the bit of, yeah, we want to go down, we want to go down, but they had to wait for clear instructions and clear orders. And along comes Tracy and um, and her, her crewmate, Liam. And Liam was a, a trainee doctor who was paramedic. Um, can I say part-time? Is that even such a thing? But he was uh, he was there working with London Ambulance Service. And the story goes that Tracy grabbed her kit and just went down that tunnel and there were the police officers saying, you know, one by one, radioing their their superiors just saying, sorry, Gov, you know, firstly, we're not letting a girl go down there and we're not letting that team of paramedics go down on their own. So um, we're all breaking, breaking rank and we're, we're going. So essentially, you know, Tracy bought me that time um, – that I didn't have ten minutes to spare. I didn't have a half an hour to spare, and um, so I I have so much to thank her for. But you know, then we look at her story. She was getting married that July. She still got married that July. She had so much on the line, so much on the line to lose, and yet her her call to go and save life was greater than than her perceived risk and that still gets to me it still gets to me every day you're listening to real risk the adventure podcast with richard harris i know numerous stories of people in the emergency services who have broken protocol and done things like this with spectacularly good outcomes. And the rules are there for a very good reason, obviously. Mm. And, you know, um, protecting yourself as a rescuer is, is paramount because mm. the last thing you want is more people injured or, or uh, needing to be rescued. But sometimes people just maybe get this sixth sense that the, just the time for action is now mm. and they, they do it. And, um, you know, you get these spectacularly unexpected outcomes as you well know yourself you know your survival is, mm. is uh, as close to a medical miracle as as, <laughs> you, as you can get yeah um and we'll talk about your injuries perhaps mm. in, a, in a moment but mm. um 
Yeah, there's there's something about these these instances which, which uh, mm. sound very familiar mm. to some of the other stories I know mm. of, which um, people just say, "No, I need to go, and I need to go now." And and again, it's it's the it's the clear headedness in a time like I'm I'm sure that there's you know, and you will know this. I'm sure that there's all of those feelings of ang- of being anxious of of and the all the pulse racing and the whole bit, but there's. You know, from what I saw from Tracy and and the others, that there was this sense of of those human beings need us, and we've got to go, and we've got to give all we've got, and that was it. You know, there was one young guy, a bridge transport police officer, and he'd left the army because he didn't want to, you know, to to go through what was what was on on. Definitely on the cards, being a, a, a soldier in the in that time, and so he joined the British Transport Police, thinking that the the worst that he will see is you know having to get someone for for fare evasion, and there he was, and he was he was in his twenties, and he held my hand the whole time as long as he could. He said, "I'm you know I held your hand as long as I could. I didn't want to let go." Wow. And and in with tears in his eyes, he said to me, "You know, I tried to give you some of my life. I tried to pass it through into your body through holding your hand." And I said to him, "I felt that whatever had happened, I felt that." Um, and th- this was not an uncommon story. You know, I was also very lucky to have, you know, the MacGyver of rescuers on scene. So I had um, the wonderful David who um, happened to be there and he was the kind of rescuer, London Ambulance Service, who, you know, even um, on his days off would be volunteering for, for you know, um, mountain rescue or whatever he was doing. And he had one of those utility belts. And I just think, wow, how blessed was I that he was there in, in my moment. And there was David, you know, very calm um, after Tracy had, had passed me over. So it was a bit like I was a like a human baton, you know, being passed from one person to the next. And and Tracy had managed, you know, geniusly to, to sort of find all the strewn clothes that were that was all over the bottom of the what what was the carriage floor and she made a makeshift stretcher to put my body in. So I was, you know, sort of put got taken out of the carriage through this sort of makeshift stretcher of, of old coats. And it was David that um, had said, you know, I want this person packed in ice. And so the, all the police formed a line and they went to the closest hotel they could and down came ice and my head was packed in ice. And that was just David being that fantastic geeky rescuer that just said no 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 silver blankets ice 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 do you remember that moment when the smoke cleared and you looked down to see that your legs were gone yeah Yeah. again you know i spent most of that time so initially if if we if we if we look at time in breaths and not in actual you know time in minutes in breaths i remember looking and the brain trying to work out what the eyes are seeing. So, so because I felt nothing, I felt no pain. So there was no signal that to 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 reinforce what the eyes were seeing. So 
I was looking there and there were no legs. And but my brain was saying, "Don't be ridiculous. You know, th- it's just a, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> um, you know, you're being overdramatic. That they, whoever they are, they will fix this. Don't worry. Don't worry. Stay calm. Don't worry." And then eyes were sort of trying to trying to feed back, say, "No, no, definitely, there's no legs. No, hang on, there's no legs. We need some action here. There's no legs." And brain then tried to say, "Calm down. Calm down." So th- this sort of strange conversation where I, I'm the third person in it was going on and I realised that I do need to do something. This wonderful scarf. Yeah, so all of my clothes had been blown off except I had this scarf. and You were literally naked. Yeah. Most of us, all of our clothes had been oh. blown, blown off and, um, and I was burnt and 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 there was this scarf still on around my neck and I managed to untie it and tie tourniquets around the tops of my legs. And I remember putting my my um, hand onto my right thigh and my hand went all the way into my thigh. And that was the moment for me that I just thought, oh, okay, this is really bad because my hands just disappeared into a bit, bit of flesh this is not good. So I tied the tourniquet up sort of higher and that was the first moment that I opted out of the roll call and I just said, look, everyone, um, I really need to stop talking and I need to conserve all of my energy. And um, I remember sitting upright and determined not to close my eyes because I knew that if I did that, I will never open my eyes again. And I stared at my watch face and that's all I remember, just staring at my watch face and and I, I, not so much willing myself to survive but telling myself that um, I, will, I will get through this and, and, and almost reassessing life. And in that time, and I don't know how to really talk about this eloquently, but in that sort of those breaths of moments, I felt that death had come to me and it was the most beautiful female voice and it was this beautiful voice that was saying to me, "Um, Jill, you've lost both of your legs. You don't want to live like this. Please just come with me. And it was so, so wonderful and so reassuring and... In the in that moment of me thinking, okay, I I hear you, and I I understand now that I've lost my legs. I had no comprehension what that would mean, um, and so I I was entertaining this idea of okay, I'll close my eyes, and in that that moment, then the only opposing voice that came into my field, which I call life. Um, was angry and it just said, how dare you? How dare you? There's so much for you to do, but you know what? It's your choice. And I felt this sense of of two hands being raised up to say, you choose. You know, you can go either way, you choose. And and I felt quite intimidated by by being almost told off. <laughs> That's how it, it felt like I was I was being told off. And and in that moment I I I I the closest thing I've ever ever come to uh, to being able to talk about 
what it was as an experience is that it felt that a new contract was being shown to me and I was signing this new contract of life and I couldn't read the small print and I didn't know what it said but I knew that I was going to be I would survive and that I'd be going on to do other things because you know that that cliche about live every day as if it's your last it it just doesn't work does it because for for most of us every day is just another day and it's very easy to slip into that sort of apathetic view of of life I'm a bit bored today or I'm a bit grumpy today well today's a nice day but you know it's just another day and and it's like you know the pleasure of a holiday comes from the sometimes difficulty of a week at work it makes the holiday more delicious Mm -hmm. and and more enjoyable so until something happens that is a wake-up or Mm -hmm. means you have experienced some difficulty pain or or suffering in life you know then maybe you don't really truly appreciate the the gift of what each day can bring mm. absolutely and but i think this is why it's so important to have to share these stories for people that that don't have to go through um the the horror of experience to to be able to um appreciate what they have and to to i think being conscious of of um of our fragility. I think that's enough mm. because that that allows us of, uh, absolutely to be human and say, oh, I've had a bit of a rubbish day or I feel a bit bored today. Um, that's okay. We don't have to be running on a high performance level every minute. But to be conscious of of how many days you you um, you have what that are, for all intents and purposes could be viewed as being wasted i think it's important to be conscious of that and just to say well you know i've 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 got a lot of asset and i've got a lot to give and i've got a lot of contribution to make so let's look at how i make that well you know even if you decide that today's a crap day let's wallow in it yeah and really get <laughs> it's the most, really it's a capital c yeah, yeah let's wring every <laughs> yeah. bit of misery out of it and make it a marked day in the calendar remember Absolutely. that day i felt so yeah. dreadful yeah it was a record yeah. awful day for me <laughs> I, mo- it, I moaned to everyone yeah. i possibly could yeah. yeah so at least i'm not going to forget that terrible day absolutely yeah. absolutely think, yeah let's thrive in our um yeah <laughs> in our misery for yeah. a day occasionally absolutely take a, take a day off yeah um, let, let's jump ahead a bit because this is the sort of stuff I'm really keen to explore with you, Jewel. And, um, you know, just to, to summarise from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you, you very nearly died that day, in fact, for a couple of days, I assume, in intensive care from blood loss and, you know, the very extensive injuries, obviously lost both your legs below the knee, collapsed lungs, um, all sorts of other more minor injuries compared to those so and and significant periods of resuscitation cardiac arrest during your um, critical care journey Mm. so Mm. you know in in the textbooks you are one of these outliers who um, kind of beyond any reasonable expectation not just survived but survived intact you Mm. know brain works apparently and Mm. uh, (laughs) i still drink red wine (laughs) (laughs) you gave up the smokes though absolutely oh my gosh and and i've spent so many days apologizing to my body and thanking it and saying i'm so sorry i'm sure your rescuers and your intensive care specialists would all be happy that you gave the oh yes oh yes um (laughs) look i i i met the head of resuscitation so my body was taken to um the wonderful and i I do need to say that the the hospital it was st thomas's hospital in london and what an extraordinary, extraordinary 
um, place that is um, and was for me. And there's there's a great story. So so as I said, I know all of my rescuers. There was Brian who had me in the back of his ambulance, and he tells me the rather shocking story that uh, that there was no output on his monitor and there was no heartbeat and it was um, he believes for just almost 30 minutes so nothing for 30 minutes and he said that I'd been even though he was frantically you know doing CPR all the way to the hospital from this from uh, Russell Square station apparently and I know this is going to be no shock to you Richard apparently I was talking the whole way so he was yelling out he was saying, you know, it's dead, but it's talking. And that piece of information, so when we got to the hospital, um, he said to the head of resus that we're all there lined up, well, the resuscitation team, emergency team, waiting to receive me. And he'd said, um, you know, look, this is this is what the stats are. It's not great, but it's been talking the whole way here. And apparently the head of resus wanted to pronounce me dead on arrival. He said, when not in the business of bringing back um, brain-dead people to be on a life support machine for the rest of their lives. And that's what that was his view. And he said, that's textbook stuff. Uh, but the rest of the team, which I now know, all have to agree. So if they call dead on arrival, they all have to agree as a team. And so they didn't agree because of Brian saying, it's been talking, you know. So they said there's there must be a, a glimpse of something here. Um, so they all agreed that they would keep resuscitating me for three minutes and 30 seconds. I don't know why that's a magic number. And I always love this sense of, you know, you can take the girl out of Australia, but you can't take the Australian out of the girl. So I love that I've waited for three minutes to pass so I could say, I'm here by 30 seconds and, you know, and it's made me really, you know, have this wonderful idea about what can be done in less than a minute. You know, if I'm if I'm here by this breath of 30 minutes, 30 seconds, sorry, then, wow, you know. Mm. Um, and I've met the head of research and I, I met him at a, a hospital function several times and I was always there with my glass of wine and I'd say deliberately and say, oh, aren't you glad that you didn't make the call? And... And he said a little, as you said, Richard, he just said, look, um, actually, Jill, you're the exception to the rule and I would not change how we do how we do things, the rules are the rules and they're there for a very good reason. And he said, you're an exception, but that doesn't mean I'd change. No, and, you know, these sort of resuscitations cost a vast amount of money and, um, you know, if you continue to to treat everyone you know, hoping that they'll be the one in a thousand or one in ten thousand cases that responds eventually in another minute or another half an hour, basically the health budget would go broke and yeah. thousands of people would suffer because of that. So there has to be a line in yeah. the sand. Mm. But boy, when that happens and you're involved as a medical person and you keep thinking to yourself, you know, if I was in charge now, I would be stopping, I would give up and then for whatever reason that I mentioned before, that person in the room just says, you know what, I think just a bit more or just do this or do that, and you get that result. Well, first of all, you feel a significant sense of guilt, I have to yeah. say, as the medical person in the room who would have stopped. 
Yeah. But um, you have to have some guidelines. You yes, have to have some, I, and some I rules to, to practice yeah. by. But boy, yeah. it, it's confronting when someone like yourself upsets the system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and also because, you know, even Brian had told me, he said, look, by the time we got to the hospital, it, 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 there was no blood. It was just liquid. All the liquid we were putting in you was just coming out of you. I like to call these sort of events uh, inexplicable rather mm. than miracles because yes. I, you know, I'm not. I I am a, a man of science, I guess, and I'm not personally religious. Um, so I like to think there's something physiological, scientific, medical that we don't understand mm. about specific cases like mm. yours. Um, another chap I'm thinking of is someone else I interviewed, Chris Blows, the shark attack survivor, who essentially had a similar resuscitation story to yours and. Um, survived intact against all odds. And um, how, how do you explain the, these cases? It, it is fascinating to me. Mm. But anyway, we don't mm. want to turn this into a, a resuscitation <laughs> uh, talk because although um, you know, there, there's certainly an audience out there who'd love, love us to continue down that, that path. Mm. Mm. Um, tell me about that first year afterwards because I presume at some point the, um, the no pain situation unfortunately had to stop and things yeah. got pretty tough. Yeah. Look, it... it I think for me it was the sense that understanding that I was alive, that I was still Jill. So I couldn't I, – I absolutely appreciated that I was still me in my mind and I understood that that was something to be to be recognised as a real triumph, that no matter what had happened to my body, that I was still – and I won't say trapped in my head, but but all the things that I knew me to be – I was still there. And so there was a sense of absolute euphoria in those early months in hospital. So much so that I think I had four different psych teams that all came to see me. And I remember the third team and I thought, okay, I think they're trying to sort of write me off as sort of, you know, not quite that I've, that I've lost my mind. So I, was tr- I remember thinking, what would, a, what would a proper patient do at this time? Should I offer them chocolates? What should I, <laughs> what should I do? Um, because I was so happy. I was absolutely – so that I was being taught how to use a wheelchair and I remember racing around the corridors going, oh, this is amazing. And the you know, physios and nurses saying, okay, Jill, slow down, slow down. And then um, – and then I discovered that I could be taller. So it was then, you know, convincing the consultant that um, rather than, you know, me being the same height that I used to be or or smaller, which is, which is what their preference was, I convinced them that I should be a lot taller. So it was all of these sort of things that were, the, for them, they weren't expecting because of not only the, the, you know, the means by which I'd arrived from a horrific event, um, so there was no, it wasn't an elective surgery, there was no preparation, but but also that I was just so happy. And I remember one of the, the psychiatric teams saying to me, do you realise what, what you've been through? Do you know, do you understand that you've lost your legs, that you've been in a bomb blast? And I said, I absolutely understand that, but you need to understand that I survived it. And that I've got my arms, and that I'm still here. And it, it, you know, it took me a long time to even learn how to talk again. And so I, these were the early days where I was even able to mouth words, and I was so excited that perhaps I might get speech back. You know, wow. 
than I did. But I, still, I feel like I'm on the psychiatrist team still at the moment. Yes. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the big <laughs> collapse or the you know the anger and the resentment and the and the grief to come. Did, was that a thing? It's a constant, actually. It's a constant. It's a constant battle of um, the the big grief, the big the you know. It's lots of little griefs. It's lot. Of, it's lots of little reminders. It's it's the it's it's being confronted by things and realizing, oh, I can't do that. Trying to find peace between the the great chasm that's in your mind and your body and how they just don't meet up. Um, and me being sort of caring for the slower body and. And being mindful of it and saying, oh, sorry, that's right. I shouldn't put you in positions and situations where you're going to be tested and you can't win. I mean, it sounds to me like your mental health journey after this physical trauma has been equally inexplicable um, in terms of how resilient you were or for for whatever reason you turned every setback into some kind of little positive and some kind of little triumph. And I'm really curious because you actually introduced me to this term post-traumatic growth and how some people, uh, after presumably a period of difficulty and adjustment and, and so forth, which is completely normal and I'm sure you've, you've had that, but somehow come out of a dreadful event more positive, more productive, more amazing than they were before and even I've heard some people in this situation say in many ways that was the best day of my life. Mm, wow. Um, and I've got two friends who have become friends partly through this podcast actually who mm. have actually said those words to me in wow. not dissimilar circumstances to what you've mm. just described. Now mm. that's maybe a bit of a stretch even for someone like yourself to say mm. that was the best day of my life but mm. would you turn back the clock um, I would. You could, yeah. Well, that's a, no- that's a more normal response. I, I would. I look. You know, I I would love to be free. You know, I think the th- that the trappings for me are that I will never be free, and and freedom also means you know doing the crazy things where you just say, "Hey, I'm going to take off and I'm going to tent." be in a tent in the Sahara for a month and or I might go diving or I might go and do this or you know just or just walk in the uh, the edge of the of the ocean mm. you know freedom is is something where your choices and your body are able to you know come together and you know I'm I'm wonderfully you know very privileged to be to have some great prosthetic teams you know in this in in South Australia that that I'm under their care but I can't have a life without them so I can't ever discard you know the idea of needing um medical help and um so there's 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 many many chains that come with my life and um so I I grapple with this idea a lot of of freedom I have to find in my mind because I can't find it in my body and therefore I I have to grow um, because otherwise if I lose my mind and become trapped and depressed then I've lost it all. So I'm, I feel very protective over my thoughts. Um, 
I, I realised very early on, Richard, that, that, that our thoughts are so powerful because they absolutely influence and determine what we do or what we don't do. And in those early days for me, the thing that set the, the course of my rehabilitation was um, I, I was motivated by only being given six drops of water in the side of my mouth. And I remember laying there, still still wonderfully being Jill in, in my mind, and I remember laying there thinking, seriously, six drops of water? I need a glass of water. Like I, I'm desperate for a glass of water. So I thought of nothing else, nothing else. I focused completely on what does it take for me to sit up and hold a glass of water. And within a week I was doing that. And that informed everyone around me. All the medical teams were like, ah, okay, That's drinking water. Wow, what else can it do? You know, um, And that... That, that confidence sort of very much was returned back to me. So I saw it in them and I knew that I'd done something great. So that was the very first indication for me of, you know, I've got to be protective of my thoughts. I've got to be very conscious of what I think because I can absolutely shape a life here based on how I approach it in my thoughts. Do you think you've had post-traumatic stress or have you been diagnosed with that at any I, stage? I was. Um, so I'd lost <laughs> – this is going to be a very long, terrible podcast. I've, I apologise to people listening who want to fill up list, lifted, but um, I'd, I lost my eyesight. Um, and it was, it was a, a few years after the bombing and my um, optic nerves detached and I was in London, and um, I suddenly it was like like um, a, like blinds just closing. So it was daylight, daylight, then nothing, nothing, nothing. And it was darkness, and I decided that I wouldn't panic, and I decided that I'll have a nap, and it's just a bad dream. And when I wake up from my nap, it will all be fine. And I woke up, and it wasn't fine. And um, so I went back to St Thomas's Hospital, and that's where they said, "Ah, okay, this is this is a real problem." And I then started to really explore how am I going to do this now? How am I going to be a double amputee with one eardrum, um, difficulty breathing, and be blind? It just you can't you can't make this stuff up, you know. And I really sunk quite low and um, I, I think it was a great reminder to me and it, you talk to anyone that's, that has suffers from PTSD, it's, it's like the sense that the world can still keep dishing it up to you. Bad things can still happen and that you're not, you haven't had your share. If that sounds, you know, remotely like, like there's some sort of fairness to to trauma, um, that everyone has some sort of trauma somewhere and you just happen to get, you know, your share all at once and that's all good because you won't get anything else. And I think that's perhaps what, what was happening to me with the eyesight that um, I just thought, okay, I, bad things are still going to happen and how do, I, how do I get through that? Do I have enough? Mm. Do you think post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth can coexist? I do, uh, because it was the growth aspect that got me out of it. So um, wonderfully, the uh, vision um, uh, 
came back to sorts. I came back to South. It was one of the things, reasons I came back to South Australia, and um, was under the fantastic care of Dr. James Mukey. Um, and I've got sort of seventy percent vision back. I've, I've lost a lot of my colour register, which is is fortunate because I always wear black. So I thought, well, this is good because I'm not going to be mismatching colour anytime soon. You know, look, I'm making jokes because because that's how I deal with things as well. I, you know, there's there there is growth in everything. There's things I've learned, and I think that is how I I find. I think it goes past finding meaning. I think you can't find meaning, but I think if you grow as a person, and I've started to look at perhaps every experience that we go through be it good, be it bad, if we're collecting them almost like a, you know, on our on our CV, then by the end of it, you know, what is life about? Is life in fact itself a quest in seeing how you navigate and seeing how you grow with what you're given and seeing what you give back and what you take and then you reach an end? Is that what it is? Is it like is that what we're all here to do? Be on our own quest to find our sense of self and who we are, um, because that, to me, is what post-traumatic growth is about. It's learning who you are, finding those depths in character that you never knew existed, and and that all of these pockets of strength that that are there, they're all there, you know. Wonderfully, not everyone has to ever, ever uh, call upon them uh, or call upon their reserves of their reserves, but they're there, and that's that's what I think I've learnt through through the multiple experiences that that we are far greater than the sums we we perhaps think we are. I find it fascinating to talk to someone who has every reason to kind of curl up in a ball and suck their thumb and say, woe is me, and um, yet you have, for whatever reason, found this inner strength, courage, imagination, whatever, all these tools you've used over the over mm. these last 17 years to not just uh, come back but actually come back stronger maybe than before and certainly make a massive contribution. Um, coming back to exactly the beginning of our conversation of, you know, when we're needed, we're there as each other's lifelines. And I want to be that reminder. Um, so I've looked at the many guises of how do I do that? How do I communicate that? And one of the, the great immediate passions for me was um, to look at how do I make a difference in, 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 in extremism? How did someone have the thoughts of that they thought that they could possibly make a difference to kill and maim people and and others and and how do i how do i play a, a part in in unraveling those ideas in in halting those ideas and reversing those ideas and so that became a very immediate thing for me um i've worked with some extraordinary people who are um former um, extremists, former terrorists who have managed to turn their lives around, um, some incredible connections of people from all sorts of places in the world including Syria and Pakistan and people that have seen um, uh, horrific 
a horrific tragedy in their own lives. And it's been it's been humbling and a privilege to do that. But equally, um, I think COVID was something for me that changed the world again. And my reaction to COVID um, was I, I had this beautiful, long, dark hair. And my reaction was, I'm going to shave all my hair off and I'm going <laughs> to become this sort of warrior um, because the world just went crazy again, you know. So that was my my growth experience of COVID. And I've, so now as my hair's growing and it's growing out into a, a, a colour that I I don't recognise being grey and and every every bit of length to me is this is this is a time of change and this was this is the the moment the the world changed and this is how long it's been changing for by the growth of my hair and and it helped me go back into my practice of of being an artist and using that as well to communicate so everything i do every brush stroke um i've gone back to being a musician to singing everything is about an expression of of reminding people uh, that we're, we're, we're pretty extraordinary species if we allow ourselves to be. Well, unlike ladies in the beauty pageants who when they're asked what uh, what do you stand for and well, they, say, peace. Yeah. they say, well, peace, you're, <laughs> you've cut off your beautiful long black hair and <laughs> and uh, but you're actually doing something about it. Yeah, so, um, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, look, um, it's been a huge privilege to, to talk to you, Jill. Um, I've got so many you. more insights into into the stuff we've been talking about and um, I hope and I'm sure anyone that's listening will uh, stop their grizzling and, and uh, <laughs> or, or revel in it for a day and then, Absolutely. And then get over it. Yeah, I think we should have National Grizzle Day. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Lovely George. to talk to you, Richard. That's it for this episode of Real Risk. If you're a risk taker or know someone who'd be good for the show, please send me an email on admin at speleopix.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast subscribe, give me a rating, but most importantly, join me for the next one. We'll see you again on Real Risk.